Hey y'all, welcome back to Love, Sweat, and Tears, Ingredients for Transformative Campus Leadership. Today we have Richard Heflin, who is a current mental and behavioral health consultant with Region 10, who spent years as an ED special ed counselor, working with kids with difficult backgrounds and difficult behaviors. Um, And now we have him here teaching y'all some really great things on how we deal with kids that demonstrate difficult behavior, how to think about behavior, how to address it in a way that is preventative and helpful rather than just reactionary, like we're putting out fires all the time. This is also a particularly special episode for me because Richard Heflin is also known as my dear old dad. It was so great to get to chat with him in this capacity and just hear about his work and his history from a different perspective. It was really sweet. It was so much fun. He is just a powerhouse of resources and practical tools and help and light for kids and campuses in hard situations um, and has spent decades doing that kind of work and helping people get the resources that they need to deal with situations that feel beyond their ability. Um, I can't wait for y'all to listen to this episode, so let's dive in. Richard Heflin, dad. <laughs> um, let's Let's Let's, <laughs> it's going to be great. It'll be so fun. Yeah. Um, Just talking. So I tell this to all of my guests, everyone. I love to start with a little bit about who you are and where you come from. Um, one, because I find that fascinating, but also I think for our audience, it just helps them connect and kind of get mm-hmm. to know like who you are and, you know, you're the what you've gone through and grown through. Um, and my favorite question to start with is just what was school like for you as a kid? What was your experience and relationship to learning like? Yeah. To me, that's two really big, different questions because you ask about school, a place and learning kind of more of an event in an ongoing process. And um, I was not a, a good person in school as far as a, a learner in school. Um, but I was raised in an environment that really promoted learning and encouraged learning, not in the traditional sense at all. Um, I remember maybe having maybe three or four books in my uh, reading books in my home growing up. You know, we had encyclopedias and we had, I don't know how many Bibles and, but as far as pleasure reading books, maybe just a handful. So learning in the traditional way, uh, was not really, uh, something that, that I felt like my household, uh, valued a whole lot as far as, uh, participating in. Um, they kind of felt like, you know, you go to school to do school stuff. And when you're at home, uh, if you have homework, get it done. And then let's do the, the home stuff. Um, but personally, uh, learning was just fascinating to me. It was uh, just a joy to learn, just the way the environment that I grew up on, uh, grew up in, in a small rural or outside of a small rural town in Oklahoma, on a very small farm, my parents had their own uh, business. <laughs> we, my brother and I were kind of left on the farm to do the farm stuff, you know, feed the cattle, feed the pigs, things like that. And, and I remember dad showing us how to do all that. And again, just being fascinated with some of that, um, that learning. And I feel like we were probably taught to do things maybe before 
uh, certainly before we had the skills to do it. He taught us the skills, but maybe even before we could actually perform physically some of those um, some of those duties. Uh, we just, you know, were um, nine or ten years old, and you know, it was uh, driving tractors at ten years old was was kind of a, a stretch, especially with some of the tractors we had. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I, I remember him showing me how to do those things and teaching me and just being fascinated yeah. by those things. And then that zone of proximal development. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and then when we made mistakes, which was frequent, um, mm-hmm. you know, most of the time he just come back and reteach it. He'd say, Richard, you're not, that's not how to do it. Um, most of the time he was relatively patient with this, sometimes not so much, but that was a, that was a generational thing back then, but he would reteach us and show us how to do it. And I, I, I never remember being uh, afraid or worried about making mistakes because I always knew, you know, uh, from maybe probably a, a different part of our relationship with my dad and, and my parents, um, they had my back. I knew they cared about me. And so in that environment, and I think that's important and really formed a lot of how I see the world today in that type of environment where I knew they had my back, it was okay to make mistakes. And it was okay out of that, that sense of being okay to make mistakes. I was able to be incredibly curious about not just what I was doing um, in the moment, but about the world in general, because if I could be curious and, and know that making mistakes was okay, then I could do that with a little bit more confidence. And I really kind of learned that early on in this this farm environment and a little bit through the athletics. Um, my dad had my brother and I um, in wrestling. I guess I was probably five years old. Um, and that is another arena of my life that just taught me that, you know, failures are not really failures. They're just mistakes. And we can learn through those mistakes. And I re- remember gosh, probably in high school, uh, my mom kind of reminiscing about when we first started wrestling. She said for the very first time, I didn't realize it, but in until high school, she said, Richard, you didn't win a match your whole first year. And I had no idea. There was no sense of failure from those losses at all. It was just, hey, let's keep in there. Let's keep doing this. Um, let's keep... Um, you know, doing the task at hand. And again, that helped me be curious and be confident because I can be confident because I don't have to worry about making mistakes. It's just something we all do. And even in my failures, you know, even when I lost a wrestling match or, you know, football game, I didn't take that on as part of who I was. Um, Because again, I was confident in uh, my parents were already going to always going to be there for me. Um, and I think as we look at education, that that may be a key missing in our classrooms sometimes. Just that that um, safe, academically safe place to be. Is it okay in our classrooms to make mistakes without the fear of, of um, something unsafe happening to me, whether it's a comment by another student or a dismissal of uh, the wrong answer by the teacher, whatever that might be. Um, so really saw how I grew up as kind of this 
encouraging this curiosity and learning and not being afraid to make mm. mistakes. So how did that curious farm boy wrestler turn into this mental and behavioral health consultant and counselor? Oh, good night. That's a, that's a <laughs> long journey. Yeah. Um, you know, going into college, um, you know, it was at a time where computers were still relatively new. Um, I remember seeing my first, um, I guess, desktop. My parents owned their own business and they had, um, they were, uh, because of the business they were in, they were provided a computer, probably had to buy the computer from uh, one of their uh, people that they represented in the insurance business. Um, and I remember seeing that was so fascinated by, you know, it was one of those big, huge, um, uh, know CRT um, screens uh, with uh, you know monochromatic green phosphorus screen um, and I was just fascinated and enthralled by that whole and just the idea of sending information across this this um, you know the internet at the time and it was is very different back then it was mainly educational, you know, higher ed folks and military folks. And it was just coming out where the businesses, the business world started using that information. No one really had personal computers. They weren't, uh, you know, they, they just weren't around. Um, and, and that fascination with that computer really kind of spawned this interest in um, computers. So I went to school, went to uh, college to be a computer science major. Um, and then I met somebody in college and after just a few times of hanging out with them, she, this, this person asked me, do you, Richard, do you really feel like you could sit behind a computer all day long and just totally blew up my whole life um, and, and realized that, you know, just the type of person I am, I, I, as much as I love to interact with a computer with that technology, there is, that's just not me. Um, I need... Um, to interact with, with people and, and do something a little bit different. So at that time, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I wrestled with that just for a, a couple of weeks. And I finally decided, you know, this other person that blew me out of the water, blew my mind, was an education major. So I thought, I, you know, I might as well try this. I enjoyed athletics. So I, I thought coaching would be a wonderful way to, to help people interact with people. Um, kind of still access that athletic part of who I was, which I wasn't quite ready to give up yet. So I thought, well, gosh, I'll be a, an education major, majoring in physical education, minoring in uh, psychology and or history. Um, so that was kind of the road I jumped uh, on and just uh, I fell in love with it. Um, had always had this fascination, part of the curiousness of, of, the, of who I am, just this fascination with psychology and why people do the things they do. And just that whole um, idea of people making mistakes and just this, this whole um, kind of pathology of it going back to some of your previous um, um, failures and things like that. So that's kind of how I got on the road to education. Um, and just, uh, again, just fell in love with the, my professors and some of my classes, some of the toughest classes I, academically I ever had were some of my physical education classes. 
um, some of the most enjoyable classes um, that I had were some of my with some of my education professors. And then the classes that just really stretched my intellect and, and my uh, my understanding were some of my psychology classes and some of those professors got really interesting. That's kind of how I got into education to to begin with was that person who kind of blew me out of the water. Mm. So at what point um, did you go from physical education more into the mental health side of things? Yeah, you know, looking back and talking to some some of my high school friends, you know, at my you know uh, anniversaries of graduations and things like that, I, I've had a couple of people tell me, Richard, we're not I'm not surprised that you went into counseling because you were always such a good listener. And I don't know if it was such that that I was such a good listener or such a strong introvert that I didn't want to talk. Um, but I, I I just feel like that was just kind of always part of who I am and just that desire to help, which sprung from uh, a lot of my background, uh, my mom, especially, and my dad, just always helping people and, uh, you know, being the first to volunteer to take somebody an, a meal if they needed it or whatever that might look like, you know, helping another farmer out, getting the wheat in before the, the storms came, you know, we were always doing things like that. So just that helping nature um, just really came through. And then uh, meeting that with just this love of psychology and just especially abnormal psychology, um, it just became a really good fit for me. And I think even before I finished my undergrad, I realized that you know, I'm going into education, but I'm going to use education as a vehicle to get to uh, mental health and to get to counseling. Um, and that's probably why I took so many um, psychology classes, just that, again, that fascination, that curiosity. Um, I kind of always had this idea in the back of my head I wanted to be a counselor. That's kind of the path I took. So what was that, that transition like from the, the work of being a PE teacher to the work of being a counselor? Um, gosh, it was very different. Um, as I was teaching PE, you know, I would have big classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, because sure. they often would, um, you know, send two regular classes out to me uh, for PE. Um, so some, some of my classes, um, sometimes I had 90 kindergartners in a class at the same time. Uh, so managing that, uh, I learned yeah. very quickly just out of self-preservation to, <laughs> to, to learn how to manage uh, a classroom that size. Uh, very mm -hmm. quickly. I had some really good uh, teachers um, that first couple of years just coming alongside me and saying, Richard, did, try this with this this classroom. So it's fortunate to have that. And so those mentors, I, I still value a lot. Um, and then just, um, just that transition, going back and getting my master's. And it was just a, a weird set of circumstances as um, I was finishing up or almost finishing up my uh, master's um, degree. Um, a position came open in the district that I was working in um, for a special ed counselor. Um, my wife was always a, uh, also a special ed teacher. Um, and this this guy would come into her classroom. She was teaching in a 
behavior classroom at the time and pull these students out and talk to them for 30 minutes or so. And um, so that just really uh, was, was exactly what I was looking for in education. Um, and then as, as I got closer to graduating, this position came open, I applied. Fortunately for me, I was the only one to apply and <laughs> there wasn't a lot of that. choice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so uh, that's kind of how I got into it. Just the, the mm -hmm. weird set of circumstances and timing or, or, you know, God's provision or whatever you want to call it. You know, you're kind of in your first uh, few years of being a counselor. Mm -hmm. What were some of your big takeaways from that? Um, time, what, you know, did you, did it feel comfortable for you? Did you feel like you were floundering? What did you notice was yeah. missing in the system? Yeah, certainly a lot of floundering. Um, but again, with that, that confidence that I had from my, my upbringing, uh, floundering was not a, a problem. Um, luckily at that time, I was, had a, a, a wonderful coworker and we floundered together. Um, so again, bringing a lot of safety, uh, we were able to um, just kind of through relationships, we were able to get together um, at least once a week and just kind of do some case reviews and that that time of mentoring, kind of a co-mentoring type of thing, because she was brand new also, uh, was really, really valuable. Um, and, and truly, we, we uh, you know, we were new counselors, both of us. Um, um, working with um, these these different uh, types of students with these different disorders who were struggling just incredibly in a situation that just was not designed to educate them um, effectively and efficiently. Um, so just that mentoring and then just a lot of um, ongoing professional development was very powerful for me also. And um, just the, the district at the time that I was working in was, was very unusual because they had a very forward thinking viewpoint throughout and across the district and especially in their counseling department. And although we weren't part of that formal counseling department as special ed counselors, we were always included in that. And they would bring in some, uh, just some, rock stars yeah absolutely so of the yes. of the all the people in my textbooks oh yeah exactly <laughs> yeah you know, some of the forerunners of cognitive behavioral therapy we had ellis albert ellis in who was um you know one of the first and i like to think call him the father of uh cognitive behavioral therapy we had him in um several times and were able to listen to him uh, Dr. William Glasser had him in, I don't know how many times, and were able to talk to him. And he was really focused a lot more on education than Ellis was. But some of those things that, that Ellis taught us at the time, and then diving into some of his theories, and um, just really resonated a lot with me at that time. Because coming from the education background, I wanted some skills to be able to use with students. And... Um, so the Rogerian stuff that I was taught in my master's program uh, just really didn't resonate completely with me. I thought, yeah, that's good stuff, but I need more. My students need more. I want to do more than just 
kind of let's let's feel together and hug it out type of thing was my attitude then towards that now it, it's almost a 180 um yeah and just finding out some really scientific evidence behind <laughs> the importance of hugging it out <laughs> and just what it provides for us at a neurological and physiological level is just what we need to do in in combination with the cognitive behavioral stuff is is important so i want to kind of switch our conversation now to some more specific and practical tools some better understanding mm -hmm. to kind of deepen our knowledge mm -hmm. about what specifically administrators need to know about the kind of work that you do yeah. And maybe give them some tools to navigate all of the things. One thing I hear so consistently from administrators is, how do I deal with behavior? How do I yeah. spend less of my time yeah. putting out, you know, dealing with this crisis mm -hmm. um, and more of their time doing the things that kind of got them into the position? Yeah. Um, so before we dive into what to do about behavior, mm -hmm. I really want to spend some time talking about what behavior is and where it comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, years ago, we, we and uh, um, I, I want to preface that by a, a lot of the way we're still viewing behavior, especially in Texas, comes from that old idea of the stimulus response, uh, behaviorism type of idea. And um, as we're learning more and more, about behavior, what it truly is, and especially what it is kind of becoming more in our society, even more in our society today, is that behavior is, is truly a, a form of communication. And this type of communication, very often, the students and or adults are communicating needs that are often unmet in their environment. And you know, I, I still see, again, especially in Texas, um, us still using some of those old stimulus response type of behavior ideas. And it's, it's just not working. As we kind of dive into some of the behavior data on campuses, we, we often see um, things like, you know, 80% uh, of our time spent on behavior is spent with just one or 2% of the student population. So we see a lot of students just repeating some of this negative behavior. And it's just a few um, students that are engaging in that type of behavior. Um, so we need to really look at and analyze, is what we're doing working? Is this, uh, you know, when someone does bad, if we just do something bad to, back to them, like give, assign them a, a, a consequence, um, and leave it at that, is that working for us? Do I need to do something different? So if we want to spend less time with, on behavior, we might need to look at what we're doing and change some of those things that we're doing. Um, and I think, I think the first thing that we need to look at is changing that old paradigm from, you know, what's wrong with this kid and how can I make them better into what's going on with this kid? What is, this, what is this behavior trying to communicate? What might be an unmet need that this student is, is engaging in? Um, so that kind of thought maybe needs to happen 
probably that second, at least by the third time I see that, that same student in my office for a behavioral issue. What I feel like I can hear a lot of admins saying, yeah, I would love to do that. I don't have the time or the resources yeah. available. Mm-hmm. Um, what, like, what can we practically do to shift our own thinking mm-hmm. from what's wrong with this kid? What do we need to change about this kid to what's happening to this right. kid and how can we meet their needs? Yeah. What are some things that you've seen work well on campuses to kind of change that paradigm? Yeah, there's some, um, some different um, ways of managing behavior that, and I, I hesitate to say it, but it, it comes from a more therapeutic background. And I know that's probably not what administrators want to hear because it's, I can hear them saying, Richard, I'm not a therapist. And we don't want you to turn into a therapist. We don't need, well, we need more therapists in school, but we, we need you to stay in that administrative role because that is vital. A part of that role is dealing with and managing um, intense behavioral issues, but let's really look at what we're doing. Let's look at some of the tools uh, we're using and just realizing that we need more tools and then where can we get more information um, to to manage uh, behaviors a little bit better. That first, and it's a big step, that first step is to start analyzing what that behavior is about, what they're trying to communicate, what needs aren't being met, and we're not going to be able to meet all their needs. I'm not advocating that at all, but just realizing that the student isn't engaging in this type of behavior just to make this, the teachers upset. They are doing that. They're effective, very effective at doing that, but that's not the motivation behind it. So asking that student or having someone else on that campus asking the students some questions What's going on with your life? Where is this behavior coming from? Um, we've got to, to get to that point in a in no, emotionally neutral, safe place where that student's gonna feel safe to engage in that type of conversation. After the consequences are meted out, after that time is over, bringing those, and I hate to use the phrase frequent flyers, but people are going to know, especially administrators are going to know who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, Bringing those folks back into my office and asking them those questions. It does take time up front, but it's going to save us time in the long run on the back end. So those students will slow down their frequency, maybe not stop altogether, but at least slow down their frequency in visiting the office because of behavioral issues. Can you think of some good resources for administrators that are like, okay, I can do that, but how, or either some books or some speakers or some trainings or things that would help admins have those conversations in a productive way? Yeah. One, one training that I really have just fallen in love with um, and more Mm -hmm. so, you know, I've been, uh, I've known about life space crisis intervention for gosh, 20 years or so, and uh, just a really good uh, set of tools to to have in your toolbox, either as an administrator or as a counselor or as a behavior classroom teacher, um, just to have those set of tools is really going to be an effective way to get to that point of what happened to you. Um, and it's a, and it, it goes from 
you know, how to de-escalate a situation uh, with a student and walking through a set of tools on doing that, determining where the, the behavior originated from in the immediate environment, and then looking past that immediate environment to see if some other things may be going on in that person's life. How can we get those addressed? And um, then, um, you know, meeting out some consequences if, if that's needed to. The training is, um, you know, it's a four-day four training typically to get that full um, set of um, uh, tools. Uh, it is offered online through Life Space Crisis Intervention. Um, and then there's, there's pop-up trainers um, around Texas, around the nation, certainly, um, that will provide that training, that come to your place and provide that training for you. And that's my favorite right now. There's uh, always some, some others, uh, you know, on a global sense, um, looking at a campus or district, um, you know, more globally, I, I'm really liking what the restorative practice movement is offering us. And that's a really good way. Um, both the life space crisis intervention and restorative practices are really coming from that, that trauma-informed perspective. So it's really understanding that our kids, there's something underlying a lot of their behaviors. And then it's also, both of those are also very much brain-based type of behaviors. Um, so it's taking into account what's going on neurologically and physiologically, that it's not just overt behavior. There's, there's something more complex than just this. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that, that trauma element for a little bit. Okay. It's everywhere. We can't avoid yeah. it. Um, but I also feel like, you know, the more we say a word, the more it loses its meaning. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to kind of spend some time kind of crystallizing and solidifying um, what trauma is and how it affects the kids oh, yeah. that we see on our campuses yeah. and how it can affect us as administrators and educators. Yeah. And trauma is that overused word. Uh, what trauma isn't, it isn't when I can't find my shoes in the morning to go with my outfit. That's not what trauma mm -hmm. is. Trauma is not yeah. about not being able to find your uh, favorite milk in the store. That's not trauma. Mm -hmm. um, trauma is a much more complex, issue that has some, again, some physiological um, components to it, some neurological components to it, um, um, that it's a little bit more complex than kind of what we uh, typically have an understanding of. Um, trauma really doesn't have any boundaries regarding age or, or gender, certainly no boundaries regarding socioeconomic status or race or ethnicity ethnicity or anything like that drama is a very common experience for adults and children especially in our american community uh, a lot of times it's easy to kind of dismiss that that trauma is um, existing in our uh in our um in our country so talking about trauma yeah what it is and maybe even how to recognize it. Yeah, and just, just how common it is. Uh, I think that especially as educators, we need to realize that our, uh, our students, uh, not all of them, um, probably not even most of them, um, but at least a good third of them are currently going through some sort of traumatic event. Um, 
and that's kind of one definition of or one aspect of trauma um, that trauma results from event from an event or a, a series of events or circumstances that's experienced by the individual um, and it could be experienced by uh, a community also a, a set of individuals but trauma is very individually based and that's one of the confounding things about trauma is if you and I were to go through the same event, maybe it's the effects of a tornado and we were both in that tornado, it's very possible that one of us would come out traumatized by that and another one of us not. Um, and that's kind of one thing that kind of confounds our perception or our ideas of trauma. Um, sometimes that kind of breeds this idea of you know, I went through that myself when I was your age. You just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, suck it up, buttercup, and let's get on with life. And, yeah. you know, it, yeah. we, some people are maybe a little bit more able to do that because of their protective factors that they have on going on in their lives. Some other people just don't have those protective factors in their lives. Um, and we're seeing as a society um, kind of the dissolving of some of those protective factors in our lives. There's not as many of them uh, just, just functionally available for our students as much as there were at least 10 years ago. And then part, another part of trauma besides this event, this experience, so another part of um, that um, trauma is the experience, it's also the effect. What does that experience, how does it affect that individual? Um, and trauma always has a physical, physiological effect that has some long lasting um, adverse effects on that individual's functioning, whether it's physical or social, emotional, uh, spiritual, um, and if that trauma experience um, happens at a young enough age and is prolonged enough, it can actually make cause some, some um, differences in how the brain is shaped. So some anatomical differences, that prefrontal cortex um, is, is a little bit smaller. Um, it's not as well developed as their neurotypical non um, trauma um, exposed peers. And that can, not always, but it can continue on into adult life also. In addition to that, one thing that kind of, that we see often in the classroom is uh, one of the other effects is that limbic system is larger with a large amount of trauma exposure at an early age that limbic system, which controls that fight, flight, freeze, and appease part of who we are, is enlarged. The problem with that being enlarged is uh, those students are always scanning their environment. One aspect of that larger um, limbic system, the students are um, always scanning their environment for danger. Very often seeing danger, perceiving danger, where danger doesn't exist. And then their body responds to that misperceived dangerous event 
as though it was dangerous. An example of that is simply if a book was uh, accidentally uh, moved off of a desk and it makes that loud um, bang on the floor as it hits. Those of us who are uh, not come, don't come from a trauma exposed background may just uh, turn our heads and look at it and say, hey, what's, what's going on? But if we have a, a large trauma exposed background, that could trigger or incite this limbic system activation where now we're, we're on guard. We perceive that the situation is not dangerous. Um, that prefrontal cortex goes offline. That limbic system actually hijacks, and I like that word that's being used for this dynamic, that the limbic system hijacks that prefrontal cortex, shutting it down, blocking off a lot of the ability to think in a rational way and blocking that ability, the brain's ability to learn um, information that's new and, and novel. So what can, what can we do with this understanding? Like how can, how can we recognize um, when someone might be in that state? Yeah. And then what do we do to help them learn in a campus environment? Yeah. Um, just, just maybe having an understanding of what um, trauma exposure looks like or trauma behavior yeah. looks like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we'll have many of our students uh, visit the, the nurse's office with stomach aches or headaches. You know, that, those somatic complaints that um, we see very often with, with um, people with high levels of trauma exposure, maybe difficulty eating or sleeping, um, which, which makes a lot of sense. If I have um, some trauma experiences in my life, as I lay down and go to, go to sleep, I close my eyes, I'm trying to unwind, What's going to pop back into my head? Very often, it's pictures and experiences of my past, my trauma-exposed past. So it's, I, it's very frequent that these students and or adults have, trauma, have problems sleeping. And again, just these um, aches and pains, um, we'll see an increased um, um, level of those at our school. Um, so I'd really check out, a, a good thing to do is check out those students who are, are uh, frequently asked to go to the nurse's office. That nurse is going to be a, a really good person to talk to um, about um, um, picking and choosing who might, who might have a high level of trauma exposure. And then looking at the behavior. Because we, we mentioned earlier that uh, behavior is a form of communication. And it certainly is with uh, people who have been um, exposed to high levels of uh, trauma. There's going to be an ongoing emotional upsetness, even a, or especially an over-exaggerated upsetness, what seems to be an over-exaggerated emotional upsetness to a small minor, what we would perceive as a small minor thing. Um, so that might be kind of this behavioral indicator um, or if we're seeing a lot of depressive symptoms or an anxious symptoms, um, a noticeable change in behaviors is going to be a key also. So knowing our students' regular set of behaviors and then seeing some, um, some rapid um, noticeable changes in behaviors, just another thing that we can notice. Um, 
part of that that uh, prefrontal cortex job is to help regulate all those executive functioning um, skills that especially schools kind of demand that their students master. Well, if we have a, a smaller, a measurably smaller prefrontal cortex, our executive functioning skills are not going to be up to par um, compared to our neurotypical non-trauma exposed peers. So we're going to have that um, difficulty attending to especially academic tasks for a long period of time. We're going to have a, a more difficulty initiating especially academic tasks. We're not going to be able to plan nearly as well. So those secondary students who um, are required to do projects over a length of time, uh, trauma-exposed individuals don't have as much of that ability uh, to do those type of things. Again, we're seeing a, an increased rate of office referrals, increased rates of suspensions and expulsions within our students who have a large uh, level of extra, uh, trauma exposure. So that focus, that concentration, um, you know, that prefrontal cortex helps us to recall and remember, organize and process information. Um, Planning and problem solving is going to be um, impaired if that prefrontal cortex has been involved. Um, so those are some, um, some of the, the signs and symptoms that we, um, that we see in the classroom. And just realizing where some of the, um, the events that happen in children's life that can be a source of trauma. Um, that are often unmet. One thing that, um, and sometimes I, I, I cringe to, have, to talk about it, is the separation divorce in the, the family structure and how that is, um, can cause some high levels of trauma if that situation isn't um, dealt with in, a, in an appropriate manner. If, we, if we're not allowing those children to talk about their their fear, their frustration, their sadness um, about that um, separation, divorce. Now, they don't have to necessarily talk to the parents, but maybe they can talk to an aunt or uncle, someone else involved in their lives. Maybe it's a situation that we could proactively get a counselor involved in. You know, three or four sessions with a, with a counselor, a therapist, talking to them about that issue uh, can really ward off that that action, that event, um, can help it from becoming a traumatic event mm. in that student's life. Yeah, as we as we understand trauma and behavior together, and how they mm. interact, and realize that a lot of the punitive um, ways that we deal with that behavior is probably not going to help, and possibly make it worse. Yeah it can feel like, okay, so then what do we do? Like, what are we allowed to do now if we can't suspend kids or we can't punish them or we know that it doesn't yeah. work? Like, what what is the alternative? Yeah. I, I think I mentioned restorative practices earlier, and I really like their approach. Um, it does take maybe a little bit longer on that front end again. But I really believe that that eventually on that back end, 
it's going to save us some time. So if folks uh, aren't uh, familiar that with the restorative practices approach, um, I would really check that out also. A lot of good online training um, or some, you know, there, there again, there's those people that will come to you, to your district or to your campus and provide some of that restorative practice training. Um, I know I'm seeing a lot of a lot more of that the restorative practices being trained at the campus level uh, more than the past even six months a year than I have in in previous years. So that's gaining some popularity. I, I hear people sometimes oh dismiss that that oh it's that like kind of like what you had said earlier like it's just this hug it out thing it's yeah. not actually like taking care of the problem yeah. it's this huge investment and then we just basically are telling kids that it's okay to do bad behaviors and not addressing the, like what what would you say to those people that have some of those reservations yeah. or don't really understand why it works or how to do it successfully yeah, well, anything can, any idea, any uh, strategy, any practice, uh, any system can be uh, misused or not used in the proper way. Right, um, yeah. So if people have that idea of, you know, let's just hug it out, um, they have a misperception of what restorative practice and restorative discipline, restorative justice, which um, that's where restorative uh, practice movement came from, is from that juvenile justice or the, the justice center. Um, and, and that restorative justice was all about restoring the harm that was done. So not just, not just going back and you know, paying the victim for the harm that was done, but really, um, you know, that may be part of it. Um, but really, the restitution is more about um, addressing all the aspects of the harm that was done, not just the fiscal aspects, not just the financial aspects, but uh, a lot of that relational uh, aspect to it. And that's probably where it, that idea of let's just hug it out kind of comes from, is that's all that people see, is that let's just hug it out, that uh, restoring that relational aspect. Um, comes from in a school setting it, and we're in a community, we're living life together in that school environment, that restorative practice makes a lot more sense because we're in that smaller community type of environment. So if I do something that harms somebody else in that small community, sending me to the office and having me do lunch detention um, that, you know, you mentioned uh, um, the word, um, you know, it, that's not discipline, that's punishment. And mm -hmm. punishment really right. doesn't help us a whole lot because it doesn't teach us uh, what we need to learn about living life together in community. Um, and the, the school system is a, just a really good way to kind of practice that idea. Um, and there are a lot of different aspects to that restorative practice from things that we do in the classroom, um, you know, like learning circles or, um, you know, doing the, um, you know, the rules at the beginning of the school year. Uh, restorative practices has a, a very specific way of 
providing that, that gives some voice to the students. And we know that when people have voice in a decision, they're going to be much more likely to comply. Whether it's me giving some input on the um, speed limit outside of my front door or me giving some input in um, you know, uh, the, the rules in my classroom. I'm going to have a lot more buy-in if I'm given voice to, uh, to provide that. And restorative practices does that, and that's just kind of the beginning of um, um, the restorative practices is that classroom idea. And then we, if things go, uh, as things go wrong or go awry uh, in the classroom, uh, you know, those circles provide, if we're used to getting in those circles and having circle time, even at the secondary level, um, those circle, you know, processing that thing that has uh, happened uh, becomes much easier, much more of a normal pr process. And we can look at the harm that was done and provide a, a restoration time for that. So how can administrators like lead their teachers in doing this? Is it just they really just need to go to a training and get some of these tools themselves? Like as we kind of try to build a campus environment where not just the administrators are equipped, but the teachers are yeah. equipped as well. How, how practically um, implementably can administrators lead their campus in that? Yeah. One thing that I, I've seen as, as we're going out and doing these restorative uh, practices um, uh, training. Uh, one thing that we're suggesting um, that the administrators uh, think about doing is doing circles in their community as the lead for that those the staff people. So every staffing they have now becomes a circle time. So we're modeling how to do uh, circles as we're talking to teachers in those PD times that we're having those teacher meetings, those campus-wide teacher meetings, or um, those learning communities that we're having in smaller groups, doing them and, and just in that restorative circle format. Uh, doesn't take any more time. We can still get business done that we need to, to get done, but we're just modeling that, that circle environment. So that's a really good way to kind of start that and just reinforce the idea on campus that this is the way we're doing life now on this campus. We're providing this, this circle time. It provides people uh, a voice um, and people, uh, I'm a very strong introverted person. When I get into groups of three or four or more, I kind of like to sit back and listen a lot more. And these circles provide those of us who like to let, sit back and listen provides us the time to speak. Um, whereas a lot of times uh, the introverts in the, in the group will just be the listeners. We give them an opportunity to, to speak also in those, whether it's in a classroom setting or that, that campus-wide setting in with the staff people. For administrators that maybe you're hearing this and feel like, oh, my staff is going to hate that. My staff isn't going to want to do that. Yeah. Where can they go? Like, what's a good resource to get a, a script or something that they can follow to make this work, to make it not just like, you know, to, 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 to really get value out of it for their staff yeah. members? To me, I, I always like um, seeing it being done. You know, give me okay. a visual example. 
of, of other people um, providing restorative practices on their campus and what that looks like. Um, gosh, I, and I hate to call anybody out, but, but probably mm -hmm. I should anyway. Uh, Mesquite <laughs> ISD has some, uh, had some, and I haven't seen them in the last couple of years or the last year or so, but they had some really good, well done videos of their secondary level folks providing some restorative circles with, with people. Um, and just a really good example of, of how they do that. Um, again, it, it does take some time on that front end, and I know I keep saying that, but I know that's, that's one thing that's on the administrator's mind is I just don't have time to do that. But if we provide some extra time up front to do that, um, it's, I really believe it's going to save us some time in the long run. If we, yeah, if we in a, in a very organized way, get to the point of, uh, of what the, the behavior was about and healing some of that harm that was done and teaching that student uh, some better ways of managing those ideas or feelings that they were trying to express through the behavior. Again, we're not going to see that student, I don't think, at the same frequency in the office for behavior as we did in the past. For some kids, it may take three or four uh, restorative circles to, to get them to make a frequency change. Um, you know, the restorative practice, they're, they're, they don't have any special incantations that they say over people. There's not a magic wand, um, but yeah. it is. I really it's feel what we like, all want. Yeah, right. Yeah, just <laughs> so give it's me, like, yeah. what's, what are the specific words I say yeah. to make this kid stop right. doing it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, the, and there really are, aren't any. Um, mm -hmm. Restorative practice mm -hmm. comes close. Um, Life-based crisis intervention, uh, again, gives us just a really good concrete roadmap for addressing some of these type of issues. Um, and, and again, restorative practice provides that kind of that scaffolding um, for managing behavior at a little bit deeper level. Um, I guess in the end, what administrators need to kind of look at is, is what they're doing working? And if it's not, you know, we know the old saying, if it's not, if it's not working, doing the same thing over and over again just does not make sense. Uh, so we need to, to maybe learn some more tools and do things maybe a little bit differently. Again, restorative practices have some online examples. They have some online um, professional development and as well does the LSCI. If we're going to be spending a lot of time addressing behavior either way, right. would you rather do it on the front end or right. the back end after yep. the damage has been done? Mm -hmm. um, is there anything else that you would like to leave us with before we go? It's pretty much time. Yeah. You know what? Just encouraging folks. Um, mm, you yes. know, I, I, when I do some of my um, trainings, I like to mm -hmm. have to encourage people to think about the people that inspired them in their past as they were growing up, you know, and really think about what did Mrs. Johnson do? You know, for me, it was Coach Landis. He was a biology teacher, one of the toughest teachers I had in high school. I remember that he never did answer a question directly, but he would always 
ask you questions that led you to the answer. Frustrated the devil out of me because I wanted a quick fix. I wanted that magic bullet instantly. I wanted to know the answer, but he did not provide that for me. And he was a coach. He was one of my wrestling coaches, the first one to kick me in the tail if I needed it, but also the first one to hand to offer a hand up as I needed it or a pat on the back or some encouragement. So I encourage people, especially administrators, to think about those people in their lives who inspired them, both when they were in high school and maybe some mentors in a grad program or in college and realize that there are still people out there that are providing that same type of inspiration. And how can we better um, inspire that type of inspiration in the people we work with and in the students that were charged to educate? Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end. Thank you so much. Um, If there's any other resources or things that you would like me to include in the show notes, I'll be sure to add everything that you mentioned um, in our show notes today. Okay. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. What did I say? Did I tell you? Did I tell you? Oh, man. It's always great chatting with my dad about all things education, but I am so privileged and pleased to get to share a lot of that with you. Um, There are links to all of the different trainings and resources um, that he mentioned in that episode in our show notes. So if you heard him say something that you're like, man, that sounds great. I got to hear more. Um, You can find links to all of that in our show notes. Um, As always, thank you so much to Erwin Solbach, who does all of the production and audio engineering for this. It makes it really crisp and clear for y'all to hear. Um, Thanks to Alana Kanoy at Steel Consulting for doing all of our branding and design work for us. Um, And as always, this production is a labor of genuine love from the folks at Responsive Learning. Thank y'all so much for being here. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.